we're looking at uh, really a famous classic text of scripture from Genesis 39 about Joseph and, and uh, Potiphar's wife. And uh, this is uh, the word of the Lord. Let's, let's read together. This is Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the uh, Ishmaelites who had uh, brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he uh, made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, uh, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had uh, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater, um, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as, he, uh, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, uh, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he uh, went, into the, uh, went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought, uh, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment uh, beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up uh, his garment by, by her until his, uh, until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place uh, where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners uh, who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he... He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to succeed. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and how uh, this rich book with so many genres, poems, stories, letters, historical accounts, 
uh, speaks to every area of our life. There is no area of our life that is left untouched. Give us open hearts that you would now speak the truth of your word and the grace of the gospel into the area of our life, of our work. Shape our minds to understand how um, we can serve you in, in every, uh, every place that you put us and to reflect on our calling. And um, so I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that these words, holy words of yours would bear fruit in the lives of your people and would shape this congregation, shape us as a family and as a church. And we ask this in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus. Amen. So um, we are looking at this uh, famous story about Joseph resisting the enticement of uh, Potiphar's wife. And, you know, generally speaking, this is a passage, you know, where a pastor is going to give a sermon on um, resisting lust and, and uh, dealing with lust. And I think that's certainly a fine way to handle a passage like this. For me this week, as I was studying this passage, though, uh, the thing that the Lord really put on uh, my heart that I, I wanted to talk to you about is the topic of our work. Because there's really two things happening here. There's In the center of the story, there's this episode with Potiphar's wife, and she grabs his garment, and he's running off, you know, in his skivvies or whatever he's got, <laughs> or nothing he's got, on, and he's trying to get away from, from Potiphar's wife. But on, in the beginning of the story, in the end of the story, the bookend the story is about Joseph uh, working in Potiphar's house, and, and later he's, he, he is put in prison, and then he's put in charge of the prison. He basically works in the prison. And it says the Lord blesses his work, and he, and he succeeds. And um, one of the things I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the importance of our work as Christians, which I think is a really important topic, which I, I don't think in church we talk a lot about. I don't think a lot of people see a lot of connection between their church life and their work life. And yet we're spending, you know, 40 to, to 60 to 70, maybe, you know, hours a week um, devoting our lives to work, and there's not a lot of connections. What, do, what is my faith and my work? Do they have anything to do with each other? And, you know, there's some question of why, why do Christians not see that connection? And, or why in the church do we not talk a lot about my faith and my work? Um, one reason for that, I, I had a, a friend in seminary who, he's from Ohio, and he was telling me about when he was in college, he was part of a college ministry and uh, very active in doing Bible studies and evangelism, kind of going door-to-door in the, in the dorms. And, uh, and he was an English major, really bright guy, very smart, good writer, and uh, very thoughtful. And his leaders in the college ministry, and this isn't a diss to college ministry or anything, but the, the, the leader of the college ministry said, listen, it, don't worry about your class and your homework. Don't put so much time and effort into your studies because these are all temporal things. These are all kind of earthly concerns, but if you go and do Bible studies and share your faith, these are, have eternal significance. And, uh, and so, you know, don't bother about your work. And um, I think a lot of Christians are kind of trained in that mentality that basically um, what happens in church and Bible studies, this is the stuff that's really important to God. And uh, the stuff that's happening in my work is just kind of a necessary evil. And yet, I, I think this is not the teaching of the Bible at all. And I think that uh, this story is actually a good example of that because um, here we have a story of a young man whose work is as a servant in a non-Christian home. He's in you know, Egypt, right? And if you were here last week, I mentioned that, the, that Genesis, the book of Genesis was originally written to the uh, Israelite community who had just come out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and they'd just been set free. 
And here they're hearing about their forefather, Joseph, who was a slave in Egypt. And it's about his life working among other non-Christians, and yet his work, not just doing Bible studies, not just prayer, but his actual work was essential to his calling, God's calling on his life, and the work that God wanted to do through him, his actual work, was uh, tremendously important. And so, um, I want to talk this morning about, about Christian work. And uh, three things that I want to highlight from this passage. First, work is where we glorify God the most. That's a strong statement, I know. I'm, I'll try it. We'll see uh, if I can defend that. Work, your work is where you glorify God the most. And when you say, my life is about glorifying God, your work is, is, is maybe one of the most important places for you to think about that. Second, work is where we pursue our idols the most. Work is where we pursue our idols the most. But third, work is where we need the gospel the most. Work is where we need the gospel. And um, I know that these, these might sound like overstatements, but when you think about if you have a job and you think about how much of the anxiety in your life comes from your work, uh, how much of your emotional life is tied up in there, how, much of your physical, how many of your physical hours go to work, and, uh, and by the way, this isn't just if you have a job. You know, I mean, y- uh, you may be, uh, you know, work in an office somewhere. You might work with your hands. You might be a mom working in, uh, and your work is to raise children and to uh, um, teach them about the Lord and teach them about the world and nurture and care for them. Wherever it is, so much of our identity is tied up into our work. And so it's an essential thing that we think about our spiritual life and its relationship to work. So we're going to look at these three things together. And the first, uh, first is this. Work is where we glorify God the most. Work is where we glorify God the most. And um, now, uh, the first thing to say about the work and what the Bi- work and what the Bible says about work, so the Bible says that work is good, right? So in the beginning of the Bible, uh, you know, God makes this world and he makes humans, the man and the woman, and they're made after God's image, which means that basically to be a human means you're like an angled mirror and you reflect to the world what God is like, his character, his goodness, his creativity. You reflect all those things to him. And then he says, he says to, to the humans, all right, he blessed them. He made these humans. They're made in his image. And then um, he says, uh, I want you to have dominion over my creation, which means I want you to take the things I've made and I want you to make something out of them. I want you to take the things that God already made and then continue making them, which means that to be human, the way that we reflect to the world what God is like, the way we glorify God, that's what it means to be an image bearer, is um, by being sub-creators. We are sub-creators of God. And actually, you know, I, 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 I always have this come up with my kids where, you know, I've been teaching them. There's a little catechism that, that we go through, you know, who made you, God? What else did God make? God made all things. And then they'll ask me, well, who made the house? Who made that house over there? I said, well, God made all things. Well, actually, um, God made the trees that the house is made out of. Actually, some people made that house. And so there's this joint relationship of what work is, is that God is a creator, and we're sub-creators. We're supposed to take his world and do something with it. And what we do with it, and you, you, know, you remember in, in the Genesis account, Adam and Eve, they're put in a garden. And that garden actually is where God lived. It said God walked around in the cool of the day in the garden. And, uh, and so Adam and Eve, their work in the garden, they, you know, they work the garden and they keep the garden, and their spiritual life were intimately tied together. Living out their spiritual life happened uh, in the garden and with their work. And what we see in this passage is that here we have Joseph, 
who's been made a slave in a pagan foreign nation uh, with people who don't love God, people who don't know God, who don't care about God, who don't care about God's laws. And and yet this is what it says. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and, the Lord, uh, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And what he says, here's a guy who doesn't know anything about God. Potiphar doesn't know God. How is he learning about who God is? How is God's glory being reflected to him? He's watching Joseph do his work. And by watching Joseph do his work, he is finding out who God is. And, um, and I'll tell you, that's, you know, that's like some of you. Some of you have uh, workplaces that you go into where you maybe work under a boss who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't care about God's ways, about loving your neighbor, keep, keeping, caring for people decently, whatever it is. And God has put you in that situation. You say, why am I here? This, is, this feels so oppressive and it's so miserable to come here. And yet that's ex- exactly what's happened with Joseph. And how you do your work is one of the most important um, parts of your calling and God's uh, spiritual work in your life of how you do your call, of how you do your calling. And so that um, uh, and um, that God has placed you there. And uh, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I, I was a graduate student at Western, and um, I was studying math, and I was a, a teaching assistant. We had these offices where you'd have about four teaching assistants that shared these offices, and we'd study together, and we'd plan our classes together, spend quite a lot of time together. And there was one office that had four people in it where uh, they were all Christians. There were four of them that were Christians, and one of them was leaving. And I was in this other office where it was me and a a number of non-Christians, and I was, and, you know, they're talking about things I don't really want to talk about, or, uh, you know, and uh, and they think I'm kind of a dork because I read my Bible and stuff. So I'm like, this is kind of, maybe I, you know, the Christian office wants me to go be in the Christian office. And I just happened to talk to my pastor, Pastor Bert Hitchcock up at Wise Lake Chapel. I said, you know, I'm thinking of changing offices. And he just gave me a great, you know, piece of wisdom. He said, listen, you know, the evil one wants you to go be in the office with the Christians. And you guys all huddle together and read your Bibles together and say praise the Lord together in your office. And, uh, and he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't want you to be around. But look, you're, you're, you're doing math with non-Christians. And when they, you know, when a non-Christian sees that you can be a Christian and actually be smart and do math, that actually is like, oh, I didn't know Christians could be smart. I thought they were just emotional, kind of, they were non-thinking people. And so for me to be in there, to be friends with them, God has put me there. And not just, not just to talk about God, but actually to do math. And so um, I think this, uh, this is an important thing, is we think about what is my role in my work. God has put me into my workplace. It's not simply to lead a Bible study. It's not simply, um, you know, to, you know, talk about God whenever I get a chance. But it's also, the, what it says here is that Joseph succeeded in his work. And there's a repetition of that word, he succeeded. There was a pattern of doing his actual work well. And that, you know what, the Bible studies was not impressive to Potiphar. <laughs> Even his good language was not impressive to Potiphar. What was impressive to him was that he did his, his craft well and what he was responsible with, and he brought glory to God through that. And it was through him actually doing his work well that Potiphar said there's something different about that guy. And that's when people are going to say there's something different about them is when we do our work well. Now, how do we bring God glory in 
in our work. I want to just highlight a few things here from, from this. Uh, I think, first of all, we bring God glory by taking responsibility in our work. By taking responsibility. So you see that in verse 4. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended him. Actually, that word for attended, it's not, you know, we kind of picture that uh, Joseph is the intern and he makes copies and gets coffee for Potiphar. That's not what attended is. When he attended to him, it means that he was in charge of the whole estate. He managed Potiphar's resources, his assets. He oversaw um, slaves. You know, he's doing uh, reviews with them, making sure everyone's staying in line. He has been entrusted with uh, Potiphar's most prized possessions of his whole, his whole house and his estate. And, um, and he is taking responsibility, and he's, he's working in this setting, and Potiphar's saying, when Joseph is overseeing things, I know that he is going to care for my stuff as if he owned this business, as, he own, as if he owned this estate. He was taking responsibility. And I'll tell you, in any work setting, when, you, when we take responsibility for the work that needs to be done, it is a great gift to the people that we work with. I mean, I know that. I'm, I, you know, I lead us small organization here, and, uh, you know, we just had Daniel uh, come on a couple months ago as assistant pastor, and, and because of the timing of our, uh, when he could come out, he, was, he, was, he had to be at a wedding in, uh, in, uh, back in Tennessee, and so uh, when they could finally get here was two days <laughs> before I was going to go on vacation, and so I was like, welcome, and now you, I need you to take responsibility of a church you've never been in before. And I'll tell you, it's a great gift when he said, hey, don't worry about it. You go have your vacation. He preaches. He plans the worship service. He met with some of you. He did a funeral, <laughs> which I haven't even done a funeral yet. And, and um, I'll just tell you, in any organization, when someone who's leading an organization can say, I can entrust responsibility to someone, it is a tremendous gift to them. And when you do that, that actually is more glorifying to God than you probably leading a Bible study in your workplace. Now, I'm not against leading a Bible study where do it. It's good. Talk about, talk about the Bible. But first, think about that your work, doing your work well, having your work shaped by the gospel is the first priority. Okay? Um, and I'll, let me just tell you, say one reason why taking responsibility is so powerful. Because it's at the heart of the gospel. Because, you know, I know, if you're like me, I look at things when there's a mess and there's things that aren't working well in a business or, you know, in my family or anywhere, I want to step away. I don't want to take responsibility. I want to walk away from the mess. I don't want to take on more mess. I don't want more burdens on me. But we think of the gospel. What is the gospel about? It's about Jesus looking at a world that is a mess. And what does he do? Does he keep his distance? He says, even those sinful people, I'm going to take responsibility for them. And that's what his death on the cross, when he died for our sin, he's taking responsibility for the sin of the world and putting it on himself. And that's what a gift is. And so that should shape our work. So we glorify God by, by taking responsibility. Also, by acting with integrity. We glorify God um, by acting with integrity in our workplace. Uh, verse 4, so uh, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of, uh, of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So there's obviously Potiphar regarded Joseph as a man who operated with a high level of integrity that he would entrust him with this much responsibility. And... Um, um, and I think that we are living in a, in, a, in a culture that is really hungry for people that operate with integrity. Um, you know, partly because our culture has taught us that you should serve yourself no matter what. 
So we're very cynical of, of other people and their intentions. And so to have someone that I can actually trust their intentions, their, their in, intentions are for my good, brings, brings glory to God. And actually, I was just this week uh, talking with a couple guys who were dentists, and they were talking about, you know, they'll get um, referrals or someone coming in for a second, second, uh, second, second opinion. And uh, they would say, you know, it would be a kid, and the, kids, uh, the parent was saying, yeah, the doctor said that he needs to get crowns on both rows of all teeth, uh, of all the teeth, and I just wanted to think, do you think that's really what he needs? And they're like, what? Crowns on all the teeth? No, that's not what he needs. And uh, obviously, um, you know, this is a dentist that's using, uh, you know, someone who doesn't know about teeth to just make money off them. And here it is that in many situations in our work, we're going to be in a put in a situation of, am I going to act with integrity? And I imagine that dentist, I, I imagine there's somewhere where he could say to himself, you know, this kid's going to be better off with these crowns. I'll put them on, you know, that works. I get some business, they get some crowns, it's going to be good for their teeth. But there, there's always a way to justify it. And so to have the rigor of integrity and say, oh, what is God calling, how is God calling me to act with integrity in this setting? This brings glory to God. Doing that brings glory to God. But I also, I think most of us, when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian in a workplace, we think in terms of, more, of morals, you know, that I, I tell the truth and I don't use bad language and, you know, things like that. I'm clean cut. But I think that the third way that we glorify God that we see in this passage is that we bless others with excellence. We bless others with excellence. And um, you notice the use of the word blessing here in this passage, verse 5. From the, uh, from the time that, he made, that Potiphar made Joseph uh, overseer in his house and over all that he uh, had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. Now, in the book of Genesis, the word blessing uh, is a really important word. So if you look in the beginning of Genesis, God makes everything and he makes man after his own image and then he blessed him. And then in, in Genesis chapter 12, probably the most, one of the most important verses of all of Genesis, um, God chooses Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to come to a land that I'm going I'm to uh, give you this land in the land of Canaan. And then it says in Genesis 12 too, this is what he says. Listen for that word blessing. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you um, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Blessing, 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 blessing. And here's God's purpose in the world of how is God uh, going uh, to bring blessing to the world is he's going to bless a people, he's going to bless Joseph so that they will be a blessing to the nations. That's true for us. God blesses us in order for us to be a blessing. That's the, the purpose that God has chosen us for. And what we see with Joseph is the way that he becomes a blessing is by doing his work with excellence, with skill, with care, with thoughtfulness. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has a little essay that uh, he wrote called uh, Good Works and Good Work. And where he talks about you know, Christians talk a lot about doing good works and caring for, uh, caring for the poor and uh, being generous. And, but he's saying a lot of times Christians don't talk about good work. And he, was, he uses the illustration of, you know, Jesus uh, in John 2, there, he came to a wedding that ran out of wine, you know, so it's kind of a poor wedding. 
And so he made, I think it's 150 gallons of wine for this, these, you know, this poor couple's having a wedding. They didn't have enough money to get wine for everyone. And so he's doing this act of charity to care for the poor. But Lewis says, but you know, he didn't just get them wine. It was good wine. <laughs> Jesus made, he, it was well-crafted with skill. And that he's doing his good works, but he's also doing good work, and he's blessing others by doing his work with excellence. And um, the reason I spend so much time on this is because the workplace is where we spend so much of our lives. Some of you have had jobs where it's a miserable place to go. And, and in that place where you work, they are shaping your whole life. They shape your home life. They shape your emotional life. They sp- shape your spiritual life. And so the effect that we have when we, of how we act in a workplace and how we do our work is, um, is essential to how we go out from this place and bless others. Okay, um, but the point is not uh, that Christians should, you know, all become successful like Joseph. Joseph, oh, he rose to the top; he became the leader of this organization. That's not going to happen to all of us. But the point is that he understood that his work was a holy calling. That you don't have to be a pastor to be serving God. This is this is not the only holy calling. Your your calling, wherever God has placed you, is just as holy as mine. And God has placed you there to serve Him, and to glorify Him. But for many people, um, the workplace is not a place where people take responsibility, act with integrity, and bless others with excellence. Uh, that's not what happens there. It becomes actually a much more competitive kind of environment. And uh, so this is the second thing we're going to look at, is that first, that work is where we glorify God most. But second, work is where we pursue our idols the most. So the goodness of work is that's where we glorify God, but the problems with work is in work is where we pursue our idols the most. Now, um, let me explain really briefly what I mean by an idol. An idol is a false god. And if you turn to page three in your bulletin, um, I have a quote from uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller's written a really good book on work, if you're interested in in reading, um, where he describes what an idol is. He says, we have an alternate or counterfeit God if we take anything in creation and begin to bow down to it. That is to love, serve, and derive meaning from it more than from the true God. So if we serve and love anything more than God, we're turning it into a God. Then he says, because we can set up idols in our hearts, we recognize that making an image of something is not necessarily a physical process, but is certainly a spiritual and psychological one. It means imagining and trusting anything to deliver the control, security, significance, satisfaction, and beauty that only the real God can give. It means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. So what happens in our work setting is work is a good place for us to glorify God and we should do it with excellence, but we turn it into our God. And in this passage, I want to see, I want you to see four, I'm going to, try to uh, go quickly through four idols that we see threatening Joseph in this setting. The first, what kind of idols do we see in our work? The first is the idol of purpose, okay? For many of us, um, our work, the biggest problem with our work is that it feels so pointless. 
And you know, we live in a culture where you're supposed to find something fulfilling to do with your life, something that's satisfying. If you haven't found something fulfilling and purposeful to do for your work, then you've really, you're wasting your life. That's how our culture views it. And it's because we're putting in our work the desire for it to ultimately give us significance and meaning and purpose and say, my life is valuable because I have this job. And um, of course, in this setting, though, uh, Joseph is a slave. He's a slave. And God has put him there as a slave. And uh, he, you know, that desire for meaning and purpose uh, could threaten uh, to undo God's purposes for him in this setting. And um, one of the things that the Bible tells us, this is Ecclesiastes uh, 2, says this. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So the Bible even says that we can view, work is toil. It doesn't give us the satisfaction that we expect that it will. And, and I, I think what, when, it's, when Ecclesiastes says that work is, is vanity, what that means, the word for vanity is vapor. And it says that what we imagine is that if I got this job, if I, um, if I got this promotion, if I was doing this kind of work, I, it would be like this trophy. I am someone. I've accomplished something. My mo- life is meaningful. And what, uh, what Ecclesiastes says is that trophy, when you go up to grab it, you'll find that it's just vapor. There's no substance there. And it just blows away with the wind. And I'll tell you, I've, I've seen that in my own work as a pastor. You know, I... You, think being a pastor, I'm talking about God's word and speaking to people's lives and counseling people, that there would be a deep fulfillment and satisfaction. And I, but I'll tell you, if I even in giving sermons think that giving sermons gives purpose and meaning to my life, it will fail me. And it has failed me many times. You know, the dreams of, well, if I could just give sermons that are compelling to people and change their lives and meaningful, I would, it would feel so good. But I'll tell you, even on those sermons where you all come and say, Nate, great sermon, that really spoke to me. Guess what happens Monday morning when I go to that trophy? <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> Maybe that's because I've got to write another one for next Sunday. But, uh, <laughs> but um, the, the, that my work can ultimately give purpose and satisfaction to my life, it can't do that. It wasn't meant to do that. Only God himself can ultimately give purpose to who I am. And so um, there's, in work, the, first we pursue the idol of, of purpose and satisfaction and meaning. But second, we also see the idol of power. We desire meaning and purpose deeply, but we also desire power and control in our life. And uh, you, you notice, follow me here on a few things in this passage, if you have it open with you. Verse 1 it says, Now Joseph had been uh, brought down to Egypt, uh, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, br- uh, had bought him from the Ishmaelites. And actually in Hebrew that says from the hand of the Ishmaelites. So Joseph comes down to Egypt. He's in the hand of the Ishmaelites. That he is powerless before them. He is a slave. And yet Joseph comes into Pharaoh's house in that this word for his hand is repeated over and over. Look at verse 3. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And then it says again uh, in uh, verse 4b, And he made him, uh, Pharaoh made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Actually, in Hebrew, that's the same word. He put all he had in his hand. 
Verse 6, so he left all he had in Joseph's charge, in Joseph's hands. Verse 8, but he refused, and, uh, when he, Potiphar's wife comes after him, he refused and said to his master's, uh, master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that, is, that he has in my charge, in my hand. And so there's been this transfer where Joseph came down in someone else's hands, powerless, and now everything is in his hands. But then the power actually changes one more time. Look at verse 12. Potiphar's wife comes after him. Lie with me. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, he had fled out of the house and she called to the men. There's this transfer of power that is happening throughout this scene. First with the Ishmaelites, then Joseph has power. Now Potiphar's wife has power. And um, this desire for power, or maybe we should say control, is a deep desire that each one of us have. Our lives are chaotic. Our home life is chaotic. It feels like we can't control it. We can't control relationships. And so when we get into work, work, especially if we're good at something, gives us the illusion, this is a place that I can control. This is a place that I can make things happen the way I want them to. But the reality is, that's an idol. Because who's the only one who's in control? God's the only one who's in control. And when I want control, um, I'm, I, work is a place where I'm going to pursue that. Okay? So here, um, we see that our desire for purpose, our desire for power, but also we see, now this is probably a big part of this passage, is the idol of pleasure is also big part of this passage, you know, with uh, Potiphar's wife, right? She's kind of the, the, the cougar, older woman cougar, going after, uh, going after young Joseph. Young Joseph's handsome. He's doing really well. And, uh, you know, part of this also, it, say, it, it repeats over and over again that uh, Potiphar has left everything in Joseph's care. So Potiphar is absent. And, uh, and even at the end, at the end of this scenario, Potiphar's wife keeps blaming Potiphar and saying, you know, you're the one who sent him in here. Uh, there's obviously some marital tension happening uh, with uh, Potiphar and his wife. And Joseph is just, he's just trying to do a good job, right? He's just trying to uh, do his job well. And, um, um, but it is in this workplace, it is in the workplace that the possibility of infidelity is, is bred right? It grows there. And part of the reason for that, look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Moses, who's who's writing this, he's bringing out the day after day context of the workplace. And he's coming into a place where he's got power, you know, and uh, things feel under control. And all of a sudden, now there's uh, someone of the opposite sex there who he's there with every day. And um, uh, let me just, you know, there's some practical wisdom here I should just say as an aside. Um, You know, maybe this passage is usually preached to preach against infidelity and things like that, that he was sexually chaste in this uh, passage. But one of the things is that um, the vast majority of, of acts of infidelity that happen, especially in the Christian church, it's hardly ever, 
you know, a one-night stand, you know, this urge of lust that comes out of nowhere. It's always in, the, in a, something like a work setting or in a ministry setting where uh, people are working alongside one another all the time. And uh, they're working on a task together. And it's that day by day, slowly growing closer to one another. And what we see in this passage is if you think that you're, if you're in a work setting and you're close to someone of the opposite sex and you see things happening, texts going back and forth, emails going back and forth, having coffee with one another, what we tell ourselves is, oh, I can manage this. I can, I'm in, look, this is my place of power. Work is a place of control. I can control things. This is something you can't control. And what uh, the, the good advice that Joseph gives us is if you're in that situation, you don't say, I can manage, I can control this. You run. That's all you do. That's the only answer. You can't manage it. You run the other way. And I just want to say, if that's you, if you've got some text going, if you have chemistry that's starting uh, to, to happen uh, in a work setting, you run the other way. You tell someone and you flee. And, uh, but it's in the work setting that our idol for pleasure also happens there. Look at all these idols. Purpose, um, power, and pleasure all happening in the workplace. And there's one more, though, that I think that all of these are wrapped into, is also the idol of praise. The desire for praise, the desire for admiration. In work, we all have a deep hunger that someone will look at us and think that we're great, think that we're someone make a judgment on us. And it's interesting what you see about Potiphar's wife there in verse 6b. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. She saw him. She beheld him. I'll tell you, you know what the big threat to Joseph was? It wasn't his hormones, you know, young, handsome Joseph. It wasn't his hormones. It was his ego. Here's a woman in a place where I'm in power, I'm in control, who thinks I'm great. And when he begins to flatter himself with that, if he lets himself be flattered with that, it would be disastrous. And it's in work that all of us have this hunger for someone to praise us, someone to admire us, someone to think that we're great. And we go to our workplace and we say, look, all these things that I want so bad, I want purpose, I want power, I want pleasure, I want praise, they're all on offer in this workplace. They're all there. And we walk into that. And it's amazing that we, we say, well, here's my spiritual life and here's my work life. They have nothing to do with each other. What? How can we think that? No way. This is the place where I, I have the chance to glorify God. This is my calling. And yet this is where all kinds of idols are on threat all around me. I better be reflecting about my work as a Christian and what's happening there. I better be bringing the gospel into this place. So this last question is like, wow, this is a place that's filled with idols to lead my heart astray and to cause me to not glorify God. How do I deal with these idols? How do I deal with the idols that tempt me in the workplace? And this is the last, the third thing that we're going to look at about work in this passage is that work is where we need the gospel the most. So work is where we glorify God the most. Work is where um, we pursue our idols the most. But third, work is where we need the gospel the most. How does the gospel shape our work? Two things briefly. First, through God's approval. Through God's approval. And, um, you know, what's so important here is that our work be done before the eyes of God. 
our work needs to be done before the eyes of God. And, um, you know, what you see here is that when Potiphar's wife comes, comes after, you know, she's hunting down her prey, coming after Joseph, and this is what he says to her in verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You notice that he doesn't say in sin against my master, whose wife you are. He says, how can I do this in sin against God? God, I do all this work, all this service before the eyes of God. And I'll tell you what happens is when we do that, we do our work before the eyes of God, what does God think of us in the gospel? The gospel says that Jesus has paid for all my sins. Every shameful thing I've ever done, he's paid for. And he has lived a perfect, righteous life, and I stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness when I stand before God's eyes. And so when God's eyes look at me, he approves of me. He delights in me. I give God pleasure as I do my work. And let me just tell you, don't let that just, like you've heard that a thousand times before. You need to, we need to internalize that. When I get up here, when I come in here to give my sermon and do my work, I need to say, God, I live before your eyes, not the eyes of these people here. I live before your guys, your eyes and your approval. There's so much more pleasure. It hits so much deeper than anyone else's eyes. And so the reason that Potiphar's wife's eyes meant nothing to Joseph was because he knew that the eyes of God had beheld him and approved of him. And so it's God's approval that we go into our work already approved. I'm not trying to get approval. I'm not trying to get purpose. I already have it in Christ. This is how we guard against our idols. But second, it's also through God's grace. God's grace shapes our work. And you know, one of the things that you see in here is it says in a, in a couple of places that Potiphar was blessed for Joseph's sake on the account of Joseph. So what that means is that because God's blessing bearer was in Potiphar's life, Potiphar, who's a pagan, who doesn't love God, he's all kinds, he's got every sin, he's breaking all the Ten Commandments, and yet God is blessing him, not because of his goodness, but because of who Joseph is. And that's what we have, is that the Gospel says that I have all kinds of sins all over my life, and yet God blesses me because the blessing bearer is in my life, Jesus. And because the blessing bearer is in my life, I get all kinds of free grace and free favor. And we walk into work with that mentality, and I'll, let me just close with one uh, example of what this looks like in a work setting. Uh, Tim Keller gives an example of a, a gal who came into his church. Who, she never went to church. She wasn't a Christian. And she came up and talked to him after, and she said, you know, um, I'm just I'm interested in what you do here. Um, and Tim Keller said, well, you know, why'd you come? Who told you to come visit our church? She said, well, you know, I work in this pretty uh, high-level marketing firm in, in Manhattan, and uh, I made a big mistake on a big project and lost the company some serious money. And I, I was sure that I was going to be fired. And it turned out that my boss uh, went in to the, you know, with the head guys and took the whole brunt of the whole mistake for me. And, you know, he's a good guy and he's well respected, he's kind, uh, and, and he could take the hit. So I went into his office and I, and I said to him, what, why did you do that? I've worked in Manhattan. People don't do that. People don't take the hit. Everyone's competitive. Everyone's um, trying to get their own. Why did you do this? And I said, all right, well, if you're going to push me, the reality is I'm a Christian. And Jesus could take the hit that I couldn't take for my sin. He took the hit. And now I share in his blessing, in his status, his reputation I get to share in. And you work under me, and, uh, and how can I not do that for you if Jesus did that for me? 
The blessing bearer was his, in his life, and he came and brought blessing because the gospel was shaping his work. And so uh, there's so much. Look at this. So many resources we have as Christians to walk into our workplace, and our work demands of us spiritual uh, reflection. And hopefully this can be a church where we can uh, learn about that uh, from each other as we grow and, and spread out into Bellingham into our workplaces. Let's pray together. Father, I pray uh, for all the lives represented here and uh, even just for all the jobs that are represented here in the different workplaces, in non-Christian settings and non-Christians who work with our brothers and sisters here. And I pray as uh, they go into these workplaces that first uh, your spirit would just be with them shaping how do, uh, how, do, uh, how do we serve you with excellence? How do we do our work with excellence? But also that that work would, uh, would bring you glory and that your name would be announced um, in every corner of this town. And uh, so, Lord, we offer our lives to you. We offer our work and our vocations and our gifts and our skills that you may use them for your purposes. And we ask this in Jesus' name.